Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 13 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Wednesday, April 19th. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek and Bobby for episode 13. We have a guest. A guest. A guest, a real live human being who actually talks to us. And it's not even some student we dragged in out from the hallway. Although we tried that. This is our backup That plan. person got out, but then fortunately we found... Matt Tate, better known to the uh, Twitterverse as Pwn All the Things. Matt, welcome to Austin. Hey, thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here. And uh, listeners, later on in the show, we're going to have um, some discussions about some uh, Pwn All the Things type material. But what else are we going to talk about today, Steve, besides well, that? First, we're going to talk about how to spell Pwn, which is P-W-N for Very you good. Warcraft and gaming and computer science <laughs> illiterate people out there. Um, <laughs> But before that, Bobby, there's some interesting developments in the world of immigration law, and it's otherwise been a relatively quiet week in national security law. Yeah, I gotta say, we are, we are totally spoiled on this podcast by the, the rhythm of, I don't know, uh, provocative <laughs> developments that, that kind of have been coming out of Washington during the time we've been doing the doing this podcast. But lately, it's been a little bit quieter, a little more... I mean, like, the most interesting thing that happened this week was we apparently put a carrier group in the wrong ocean. See, see I think we knew all along where this was. <laughs> we just didn't particularly care to spend the gas money to, to ship it up there. Is it gas money? I thought well, they had nuclear, nuclear reactors. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. What, yeah, how, how do you quantify that? Um, by the number of times President Trump goes to Mar-a-Lago? That's expensive. Yeah. All right. We're all spending right. the money elsewhere. Uh, On now, that note. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. So we've got these important immigration-related developments, and there's, there's two of them, um, not directly related, but they all go to the larger question of what is the discretion the executive branch enjoys to remove people from this country. And touch on, and, and, and with a, a fairly fury speech by Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, where he basically told Congress to shut up if they don't like how the uh, Homeland Security folks are enforcing our immigration laws. So I didn't actually follow that one. I'm going to have to rely on you, so shut up, he explained. Uh, that... You know, it's, it's a really deep, you know, principled approach to, to politics. But um, John Kelly said, quote, if lawmakers do not like the laws they've passed and we are charged to enforce, then they should have the courage and skill to change the laws, he told a crowd at George Washington University. Otherwise, they should shut up and support the men and women on the front lines. <laughs> well, you weren't kidding. I, just I really wasn't kidding. Um, so I guess my reaction to that is that... Not to shut up? No, the, the, the second part, obviously, I don't think it's ever appropriate to tell the representatives of the people they need to shut up and just support. Um, I think that is sort of self-refuting, but uh, the first part about Congress, if they are unhappy about something that's on the Indeed. books, I think all too often the posture of Congress is to complain and complain and not introduce a bill to fix it. I, listen, I couldn't agree with that more. I, I've testified before Congress on that effect, to that effect, which has made me lots of friends, including your friend and mine, Bobby Congressman Steve King from Iowa. Who we'll, who we'll come back to in a second. You guys are tight. You're... He also figures prominently in our story. So lots of immigration developments. Bobby, some other stuff happening in Uganda. Yeah, you know, this is one that I, I every every few years I'm blogging about this, trying to get other people interested. You're the one. Uh, Jack Goldsmith was on it as well. Um, the the uh, special operations deployment in hunting Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. We have more or less declared victory, and no one was really paying attention, at least here. Obviously, there they were. 
Uh, we've declared victory and ended that deployment. And this was a situation, Steve, that presented some pretty interesting war powers resolution issues back in 2011 when it first came up. Um, we're well past that now, but I think it's worth marking the occasion. You know, they say, they say these things never end. Well, there's one that ended. Indeed. And it uh, seems pretty happily. Okay, so we'll, why don't we talk first about um, the immigration cases. Then we'll come back to Uganda, and then, and then we'll bring Matt. Of course, Matt, you're welcome to jump in on any of this you like. <laughs> um, don't let us go on too long. The listeners can't stand it. Um, oh no, they prefer. I mean, the 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 dulcet dul, the dulcet dulcet tones of a of a British national security expert compared to. Oh, exactly my point. Exactly. Please, please jump in the mix. All right. So so starting off with the national security immigration stuff. I mean, Bobby, we talked last week on the podcast about the Supreme Court and the Castro case. This is a case from the Third Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, with jurisdiction over Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and most importantly, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Clerkship opportunity, law students. Clerkship opportunity. I actually have a former student who clerked on the U.S. District Court for the District of the Virgin Islands. Oh, I, had a, I had a law school classmate, um, Carter. He, he clerked out there. I think that was a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> um, anyway, but so to make a long story short, the Third Circuit had ruled in this case that undocumented immigrants in the United States, in this case, 28 Central American migrant women and their minor children, um, were not protected by the Constitution Suspension Clause because they were functionally equivalent to arriving aliens stopped at the border and because the Suspension Clause shouldn't apply to those non-citizens either. Um, Bobby, we talked a bit last week on the podcast about why I have problems with that analysis, even if maybe we end up in the same place with the result. Um, the news hit here, though, is that on Monday, with no recorded dissents, the Supreme Court denied certiorari, leaving intact this, in my view, controversial and deeply flawed Third Circuit decision. And so an important uh, point about denial of cert for any uh, non-lawyer listeners, denial of cert doesn't make this the Supreme Court's blessing of the Third Circuit holding. It, in theory, means no more, no less, and the court decided not to take that case, leaving in place the status quo. And as a result, this does not make the Third Circuit's ruling the law of the land elsewhere, but it certainly does mean the Supreme Court didn't intervene and, and change the rule for the Third Circuit. Yep, and you know the reason why I think this matters, Bobby, I, I had my, my first ever tweet thread um, on Monday about this. Did I, you do it right? Because I've done it wrong, and people jump all <laughs> over your butt on Twitter if you don't do your thread right. So I got some, you know, responses, but none of the procedural variety. I, so I trust you did it right. So perhaps it was thread correctly. But anyway, I mean, I think there are two different sets of implications here. The first is obviously within the Third Circuit itself. So this is anyone in New Jersey, anyone in Pennsylvania, anyone in Delaware, not really that many cases coming out of, you know, St. Thomas and St. John. Um, and in those cases, right, you're going to have basically far less entitlement to judicial review in immigration cases. You're really going to be limited to the statute um, if you're an undocumented immigrant. And the statutory review is pretty narrow, especially in what are called the expedited right. removal cases. Right. So that's the key thing, right? In that case, you've got very little statutory processes of, by definition and by intent, a very expeditious process. And, and there's now... Um, at least in that area of the country, no uh, way to collaterally get more process. Right, and we've already seen, I mean, just to give you guys a sort of real-world example, example, there's a, 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 an Afghanistan national who's a translator who worked for the U.S. Army who was detained as one of the original airport cases at Newark, right? Mm. Newark Airport being in the Third Circuit, um, and who has filed a habeas petition to be released from this detention. Um, and the government's response is that the court has no authority because of Castro. 
Wow. Okay. So he's and so he'll be now that cert has been denied. That's it. Right? That's it. So he'll probably either stay in detention or get sent back to Afghanistan at some point soon. That's interesting. That, all those those particular slice of cases. There there are many sympathetic cases. Ones where people have put their lives on the line in service of our forces abroad in their home countries at great risk to themselves and their families. Those are those especially stand out. Um, indeed, and uh, they stand out especially to me. This is sort of a silly connection, but the the acronym for the visa is a special immigrant visa. Um, it's my initials. Uh, um, <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. No, I think so. Um, but the other, Bobby, the, the real implication here is I think Castro is going to empower arguments both in Congress and within the executive branch to push more aggressively against what I had thought were established principles about the constitutional rights of undocumented immigrants in the United States. So we could see more statutes trying to limit those rights, whether to judicial review or to other forms of process. We could see more aggressive executive branch actions directed not, as in the case of the travel ban, against folks overseas, but rather against undocumented immigrants in the U.S. And that might be a really good segue, Bobby, to Indeed. the other story you wanted to talk about. Well, I was going to ask you whether, the, whether we have any clear Ninth Circuit precedent on this same set of issues. So, you know, the Ninth Circuit has never expressly held that non-citizens uh, who are out of status are protected by the suspension clause. There are plenty of cases in the Ninth Circuit, and, and frankly, in a bunch of the other circuits, that just assume that they are. I mean, that assume that they get judicial review and that, you know, habeas is available and the statute doesn't otherwise allow meaningful review. So I, I think this issue probably does eventually get to the Supreme Court. I think the question is, what kinds of measures does it incentivize before then? That's right. Well, and so that leads us to other things going on in California, where uh, we've got our first example, at least that I've heard about, of a, uh, of a dreamer, a, uh, a person who was in, in the country without the uh, proper authorization, but who came here as a, as a kid in that capacity, and for whom the Obama administration had granted, in effect, forbearance from removal, and to tie back together, right, I mean, the reason why the Obama administration dreamer policy was controversial was because it had gone to Congress, had specifically requested legislation to legalize the status of these individuals. Congress had refused. Right. And, and, and Obama, President Obama had decided, well, if you're not going to, if you can't do it that way, then I'll just exercise what amounts to uh, enforcement discretion to choose not to enforce in this category of cases and to make it really clear and reliable that that'll be the deal. But of course, that's only as useful as his time in office. Uh, that's right. And so what's happening now is it appears, um, although there's been no formal public recognition of this, that the Customs and Border Patrol Agency um, is now starting to deport on a case-by-case -case basis um, certain individuals who otherwise would have been dreamers under the Obama policy. Now, we don't know that this is a policy. There's right. no evidence yet that this was actually a policy decision as opposed to a one-off action by a particular officer. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and so, I mean, this is a case out the fact that it's only really been one well-publicized case out of California so far, I think, suggests that it might, it might just be one test case. But there have been a couple of other examples of individuals who were put into detention who were dreamers, mm -hmm. um, where habeas courts basically said, listen, the government has the power to hold dependent removal, even though you're a dreamer. Um, what makes this particular case interesting, Bobby, is a couple of things. Um, first, right, Steve King, uh, the very powerful Republican congressman from Iowa, when the story was uh, reported, tweeted with a picture of a mug of beer, um, first non-validatorian dreamer deported, Border Patrol, this one's for you. Um, I don't think that tweet went very well. There, there's something on Twitter, Bobby, called the ratio. Have you have you encountered the ratio? Oh, tell me of this ratio. The the ratio is apparently how you can tell when a tweet has 
backfired rather badly. Um, when the number of replies dramatically outstrips the combined number of likes and retweets, that's apparently oh, the ratio. Okay. Um, what's a good ratio? What are you looking for? Uh, a good ratio is way under one to one, okay. right? You want your you want your retweets and favorites to dramatically exceed the number of replies. Um, of course, for me, it's usually zero, zero, and zero. So if you're right. zero, you yeah, don't have a problem. You can't really uh, do the math on that. Anyway, Steve King's tweet, you know, not not so uh, not so well received as of right about now. He's got seven thousand replies, one thousand retweets, twenty two hundred likes. So. You know, kind of a controversial statement from Steve King, but Bobby, there's a, a, a fitting piece of irony, right? The lawsuit arising out of this deportation case we found out today has been assigned to a, a particular federal judge in California. Yes, you may recall a judge presiding over the lawsuit against Trump University, uh, who was born in Indiana, I believe, but nonetheless prompted Trump at one point to say something about his heritage being Mexican, this incredibly inflammatory uh, attack. That's the judge who's going to preside over the lawsuit that's been filed in the wake of this person's uh, very rapid removal from the United States. Judge Gonzalo Curiel, right? So um, the more things change, Bobby, the more they stay the same. I, I just think it's amazing. And, you know, the, just to be clear, these assignments of these cases under the Southern District of California's practices, they are uh, basically randomly assigned. It's just the next judge up for the next case, and they just kind of go through the cycle. And it just happened to come out this way. But, boy, you, you have to imagine what it would be like to be the aide who goes into the uh, Oval Office to mention, you know, somewhere in the briefing. By the way, remember that judge, he's presiding over the, uh, the right. removal of the dreamer. And just to add one more, one more twist to, to the Montez case. I mean, I think what's interesting is the, it, apparent, it appears from the press reports that they actually did not deport him because he was DACA eligible, or, or the, the term documented um, is the term I've heard used. Documented. Um, but because they stopped him and he wasn't given an opportunity to prove that he was covered by DACA. So he was found, he, he at the time he was, uh, a CBP officer approaches him, asks him questions, starts inquiring about uh, documentation, and he doesn't have his wallet with him, doesn't have any ID. And I, I believe the claim, at least in the, com the complaint, is that within three hours yeah. he was in Mexico. So the question, so let's get to the law on this. Yeah. Uh, is, is there any legal reason why he couldn't ultimately be removed? Um, so I guess the question is, First, could he be removed? Second, did he have rights to process before his That's removal? That's what I'm getting at, right. So. Right. And, and it seems to me that the short version is, um, if he really was out of status, and if the Trump administration is going to rescind DACA, right. they haven't yet. Or to put that in a different way, if they're going to go ahead and exercise the enforcement jurisdiction that previously had been exercised, but then Obama decided uh, at that time to stop exercising, if they revert to the prior status quo, then it seems removable. Uh, whether it's a good idea or not, it's a different matter. But legally speaking, I don't think he'd have any reliance interest based on what Obama had done by way of forbearance, do you? No, I mean, I think the question is just whether he'd have a right to a hearing and to yeah. contest the basis for his removal as opposed to just being yeah. whisked back across right. the border. Right, including, you know, so what are the reasons why you need a hearing, listener? You might be thinking, well, if he's removable, what's the big deal? Well, A, uh, in any given case, maybe it's not clear the person's removable. Yeah. Maybe the facts are actually disputed. Maybe the person has some kind of claim about... Uh, you know, refugee status, asylum, that sort of thing. Maybe the person's a citizen. I mean, this has happened, right? right where, exactly. where where people are arrested on immigration charges and it turns out, oh, well, you're actually a U.S. citizen, right? So yeah. so the judicial review of this context matters, which is why, Bobby, just to tie things full circle, yeah, exactly. Castro is so problematic, right? Like, we could all have, reasonable people can disagree 
about who should and should not be removable, about you know what the category should and should not be. Um, I think a role for the courts here is is paramount. The most important thing, of course, is accuracy. Right. At the end of the day, and I don't think anyone can dispute accuracy. No one can be in favor of, uh, who cares if it's accurate or not? Of course we need to be accurate here. And then the question is, how do you strike a balance where these proceedings, which may happen at volume over the court, over the spread of the country, how do you keep them relatively expeditious? That'll be the question. Yeah. So, um, and this dovetails, of course, with the travel ban litigation, which continues apace. Oral argument before the full Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, now scheduled for May eighth in Richmond. So, yeah. and we should we should mention, by the way, you know, Trump had said at one point that he was going to make provision for yeah. the Dreamers, and that he wasn't going to. Uh, have a policy shift that would produce this kind of result, which is why I wonder, of course, it's entirely possible he's changed his mind or is not following through on that particular promise. But I suspect, no, I suspect this was more of a lower level action. Oh, I agree. But then that goes back to the John Kelly speech, right? And I mean, the, the other part of the John Kelly speech that I didn't quote was him saying basically that for too long, um, Homeland Security officers, CBP officers have been pawns in the political game. Um, and it's time to basically, you know, take the chains off and 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 unleash them into the wild. You know, Bobby, we talked about this last week. I mean, did, there did are, he actually say that? Uh, not the last part. Okay. Unleash into the wild. But, <laughs> but I wasn't sure at this point because he did say the shut up. Thing. Well, no, but he did say that. I mean, he did say they've been, they've been pawns of politics, right? That they've been sort of constrained from doing their job. Um, you know, I think we're heading for a period of much more aggressive. Um, exercises of enforcement discretion. And about that, I will say that that way lies less authority, less effectiveness for CBP or any other agency. More litigation. Well, it just, it, you know, I think this is sort of a lesson that uh, I think Jack Goldsmith conveys very well in the, the terror presidency, um, that in accepting legitimate oversight, accountability, constraint, and, and transparency, that lies your foundation of trust, and and, if, and that in turn helps you achieve your strategic mission. It feels good to talk about let's let's let people do their jobs and get out of their way. The truth is, I think that actually ultimately is penny wise pound foolish. I think that's right, but I also think this is not going to be the last time we're going to talk about immigration on this podcast. No, no. no. Um, speaking of immigration, we have we have a foreign national at our very table. What's this guy doing here? Boy, before we get to Matt, let's talk real quick about Uganda. Oh, Uganda. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I for Think people will get that. I, I so this is a good question. How many of our podcast listeners are also Book of Mormon fans? Uh, well, now you gave it away. I was going to say they could tweet to see what the reference was. But the first person who tweets would give it away. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and, and we know who that's going to be. Uh, Karen. Um, it will not be Karen. All right. Well, uh, in Uganda, let's let's just kind of knock this one out really quickly. In 2011, at a time of of grave uh, global concern about the. Uh, Lord's Resistance Army and the atrocities that Joseph Kony and the other LRA uh, folks were committing in Uganda, um, we deployed special operations forces to uh, engage in a, uh, a support mission to assist Ugandan forces that would, uh, would be hunting him down and hunting them down. And it presented an interesting war powers resolution question because they were combat equipped, but they were not there for a combat role. And uh, the, the short version of it is, under the War Powers Resolution, this did trigger a notification requirement, which duly occurred, but it didn't constitute the introduction, or didn't necessarily constitute the introduction of U.S. forces into hostilities or situations where hostilities were imminent. And hence, the administration's position was, this did not trigger the 60-day clock, right? The 60-day clock to remove forces absent congressional authorization. 
So that, that was the claim. It, it kind of depends, though. There's a portion of the War Powers Resolution, Steve, that refers to the fact that if your support mission in, in connection with the host nation's armed forces involves uh, transportation of those right. forces, being embedded with them as they deploy, then that counts as introducing your forces into hostilities as well. And, and so it, it all kind of turned on what was the nature of what those, uh, the soft personnel were doing. By 2014, there were enough news stories about it that made clear that we were, in fact, you know, deploying downrange with them, going out, coordinating, providing transport, uh, sort of on-scene assistance. Sure seems to come within the parameters of the, of the War Powers Resolution. Right. So in, tw- in 2014, I argued that this actually did trigger the yeah. clock, and, and so it raised an interesting and you question. Were, and, and you were right. I was right, indeed. But I also argued that... Uh, in the meantime, the question had been mooted by subsequent legislation right. for funding the mission that was very explicit about carrying out these exact activities. Although, of course, the War Powers Resolution also says that funding authorizations aren't supposed to be the kind of substantive authorization sufficient to displace the War Powers That's Resolution. Right. right. So the War Powers Resolution purports to interpret itself or purported to interpret itself. <laughs> so meta. Yeah, exactly. And indeed, that was the exact issue that the Clinton administration's OLC confronted with the Kosovo intervention where they wanted to be able to conclude and did conclude that there was a congre- an adequate congressional blessing through funding, et cetera, um, and they concluded that the bit in the War Powers Resolution that said don't find, don't find authorization in these kinds of measures couldn't bind future Congresses. And if future Congresses wanted to express their approval through funding, that was their business. The last-in-time rule would prevail. And so basically on that same reasoning, I figured that was the end of this. Um, whether everyone agreed with that or no one cared was about the last thing anyone ever heard of it. So it was, it was with great interest I noticed an AFRICOM press release from just a couple of weeks ago announcing that because four out of the five top leaders of the LRA, though not including Coney, but the other four, uh, had been captured, or I think maybe some killed, but at least captured. Incapacitated. And, yes, in, taken off the battlefield, as is said. <laughs> uh, and since the, uh, the overall forces available to the LRA had fallen below 1,000, it had basically been degraded to that, that point that, you know, Steve, we sometimes talk about, and used to talk about in the Al-Qaeda context, when is Al-Qaeda effectively defeated? And Jay Johnson and others would, would talk about, look, there comes a... So a, close! There, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spectrum. There does come a tipping point. No one can say exactly what it is, but you get degraded beyond the point of efficacy, and then then it's over. Right. Um, I guess that's effectively what we said here, because the, the AFRICOM press release basically said, um, the prior mission is ending, we've effectively won, it's close enough to victory, and we're transitioning to a more conventional uh, you know, security stabilization. And sort of a, a, another, another interesting chapter in the War Powers Resolution archives. Indeed, indeed. So now it's nothing but a uh, fact pattern for final exams. And the Trump administration to exploit in the future. If they even, I, I wonder whether they would really be that interested. <laughs> so where did Jay Johnson give that speech? Oxford. The Oxford, Oxford Union. Where's Oxford? Why, that's in England. Huh. Are you sure? Should we, should we ask someone from England? Hey, Matt, where's Oxford? I'm pretty sure that's in England. Oh, excellent. Well, what else is going on in England these days? Hey, how do you like being in Austin? It's your, it's your first full day in Texas. What do you think? I love it. It's a great place to be. It's uh, nice and sunny. Here are your five dollars. Thank you very much for the uh, for the propaganda statement. You only have five dollars? Well, there's there's more. I want pounds. Yeah. <laughs> well, depends the on. Dollars doing pretty depends, good against the pound. Depends on the hour, right? Yeah. Well, so um, let me explain first of all. You know why Matt's here. 
I, I, Who is Matt? Matt Tate. Uh, Matt, why don't you uh, give a quick rundown of your prior positions, and um, and then I'll, I'll mention what you're doing here at the University of Texas. Okay, so um, I started my career at GCHQ, which is the UK equivalent of uh, the National Security Agency. And after that, I worked in a consultancy, and then after that, I worked at Google in their Google Project Zero team. Uh, doing security research, which was interesting, and then after that, I set up my own consultancy, and now I'm here. And we've, uh, I think, for those of us who tweet a lot or, or you know read the blogs at Lawfare and Just Security, like everybody knows, you as Pwn all the things. You're you're an extremely uh, high impact uh, participant in that particular media space. And, and unlike us, he knows stuff. And and he yeah exactly for the reasons explained a moment ago, actually knows what he's talking about on the technology side in particular, but. In a way that kind of reminds me of, of our friend Ben Wittes, um, you show all the signs of actually knowing a lot about the law as well, but perhaps more than a lot of the lawyers do, and then the policy and the institutional aspects, all of which um, you know got you on my radar when we at the University of Texas were setting about developing a program to try to improve and, and pioneer new ways of providing cybersecurity-related training at the graduate school level. The particular niche we wanted to try to fill and that we're going to try to fill is to do things that are in the nature of a bespoke cross-training model at the graduate level where a law student can learn a lot of things meant for law students but coming from other disciplines like computer science, computer engineering, public affairs, and conversely across all those other domains. In other words, providing pathways for the students from any of those degree programs who are going to go on to work in this area to have had at least a little bit of uh, sophisticated exposure to key concepts from other domains, whether it's the science or, or the institutional studies or the legal studies. And as we set about developing, uh, set about developing how we were going to do that, one of the most important pieces, obviously, would be to provide a setting in the classroom where law students, public affairs students, maybe business students, could get some of the knowledge that the computer science and computer engineering students, of course, would, would have through their natural coursework, but which would be which is often seen as very intimidating for a law student or others to maybe cross-register, go over to, the, to that building. We wanted to create something that was designed from the ground up to teach them the technical concepts they might need to know. And um, we offered the position to Matt, and he will be joining us here at the University of Texas. I'm proud to say, Matt, you're becoming a Longhorn for next year as our senior. Hook'em. Hook'em. That's what we say. Hook'em. Um, we are going to have you here as a Longhorn doing this work and teaching and working with us at the Strauss Center in our cybersecurity program for 27-18. And I got to say, I'm very excited about that. And, and here we have you in town sort of learning the lay of the land. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's uh, been a great day so far. Like seen everything. It's been, yeah, it's great. Well, so the class you're going to teach, and obviously you and I are both, we have a lot of syllabus construction to do because you're going to have that tech training class for the policy and law students. I'm going to have a, uh, a class that's meant also for the computer science and engineering students that's the legal and institutional and policy side of this, and we're going to run these as foundational courses in the fall. Tell me a little bit about what sort of things you might do in the fall course. Obviously, it's all still very notional at this stage. Yeah, so it's, it's all very much up in the air at the moment. Um, but the course will be at, at technical foundations for people that haven't got a technical background in computer science or programming or anything like that, but who want to understand what cybersecurity is. They might have, you know, seen uh, uh, data breaches in the news. They might have, you know, heard that, you know, there were these attacks going on. There's all, you know, uh, uh, these things happening in the news. But what do they actually mean? What's actually going on? You know, when someone hacks a computer, what is that actually? Uh, and to have sort of a, a, a basic understanding of 
what hacks are, what they look like, and potentially how to defend against them as well from a technical perspective. I will freely confess right here in quasi-public, I guess, quasi, because I'm not sure how many people listen to this. But uh, <laughs> Actually, can I digress? I've, I looked at the stats the other day. My dear listeners, uh, we are averaging about 1,400 downloads per episode, which I got to say, guys, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. It's not what I really expected when we started. But but that's downloads, Bobby, not listeners. Oh, well, look, you, know, you can only ask for so much. I'll take the downloads. Uh, <laughs> listeners, maybe. So, we're like, so, so, so in other words, please have your friends auto-download this, even if you don't listen. Absolutely. I'll take that. Yeah, we, we need to get this episode up over 1,500 and add, a, add 100 per week. That's your job. Spread the word, folks. So... Um, I will confess that I am super excited to audit your class. I have no doubt that I need to learn every bit as much as my students do, the, the sort of technical concepts you're going to be conveying. Uh, meanwhile, I'll be teaching one that uh, is going to sort of survey the variety of institutions, public and private, and associated legal and policy issues associated both with uh, the, the American architecture for defending networks and providing InfoSec, and also uh, the, the spaces in which we actually legally authorize and indeed encourage uh, government and, and maybe private actors uh, to do things uh, of an offensive variety. So it's going to be a really fun fall. And then we're going to bring it together in the spring. We're going to co-teach a colloquium-style course that's going to be a weekly deep dive into a lot of cutting-edge issues. Matt, what sort of issues do you think we might uh, include in that run? Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking that the, the spring course will have lots of uh, uh, things more like the the vulnerabilities equities process, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, things like um, uh, potentially hacking back, you know, what does that look like? Uh, there's a bunch of things that don't fit neatly into sort of foundational courses where they, they can fit into, you know, a week's worth of, uh, you know, lectures or whatever. That's fantastic. And, you know, we actually have a version of that sort of policy survey course underway right now with this year's wonderful, amazing cybersecurity fellow, Professor Andrew Wood, who's with us from uh, Kentucky. Andrew's amazing. He's teaching a course that the students are very much enjoying that's doing that sort of thing, kind of going from topical issue to topical issue, and it's been a real treat to have him around. So uh, I got to say that these, the ability of the, of the center to bring in guests like this, Steve, is one of the things I, I really like about being here at UT. Oh, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, this is about as fun and interesting and taco-laden a place to study national security laws there is in the yeah, world. Yeah, we did. So for, for Matt's first lunch in Austin, we did take him to Torchy's for interested listeners. <laughs> uh, breakfast was Elizabeth Street Cafe. Lunch is Torchy's. We're going to make him gain as many pounds as possible. Both were delicious. <laughs> so, so while Matt's here, I mean, it seems like there's been some some relevant stuff going on lately with shadow brokers, with the vulnerabilities equities process. Let's ask. Let, let, let's let's put him to work. Yeah. Okay. So, so Matt, um, for those who follow these things closely, most people will know that shadow brokers has sort of struck again, but this time maybe delivered delivered a little bit more bang for the buck. Who are these people? What is it that they've been up to? Right. So Shadow Brokers was a Twitter account and a Medium account that uh, appeared in, I think it was late August last year. Um, They write in intentionally obfuscated English. And they released back in uh, uh, August last year a, a, a large number of files, most of which were encrypted, but some of which were not encrypted. And they appeared to contain uh, uh, NSA tools used for hacking networks. Uh, and of course, this created a lot of cons- you know, uh, consternation as to how they potentially might have uh, uh, got these tools, whether or not you know, they had other tools. You know, people didn't know what was in, in these encrypted other files. Um, Shadow Brokers uh, struck again uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, later last year. Um, they uh, uh, 
they, they constructed a fake auction where they said, you know, in the event that you give us, you know, I think it was $200 million worth of Bitcoins originally. And they, 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 they later reduced their offers to how much it would cost to purchase all of these uh, uh, tools. Um, obviously, no one was interested because once you've given them this $200 million worth of Bitcoin, there's no guarantee that you would get the tools anyway. <laughs> the, mar- the market spoke with no offers. Right? Yeah. And so... Um, uh, Curiously, in in January, they announced a, uh, in a post that they they were gone. That they that they had closed up shop. They they no longer had any interest in uh, uh, continuing. Uh, but then suddenly, um, uh, just after the Syrian strikes, I think it was, um, uh, they suddenly appeared and started releasing additional uh, uh, series of tools. And so it's it's been very interesting to see this group, uh, uh, which hasn't been publicly attributed. Um, uh, by the U.S. government, when, when we look at things like um, uh, the Guccifer Two and the DC Leaks groups that uh, leaked lots of documents that were stolen from uh, uh, the, the DNC and from John Podesta last year, those were publicly attributed by the U.S. government to being uh, the Russian government. Um, shadow brokers appeared during, you know, in, in a similar in a similar vein. They had similar style, um, but they were they they were conspicuously not included in in the statements attributing hmm. mm-hmm. uh, 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 Guccifer and DC leaks to the Russian government. Now, there's many possible reasons for that. Is it, is it necessarily the case we should infer, therefore, that we don't think it's the Russians? Is it is it possible that internally that sort of decision has been made, and that is the thought, but there's still other... Like what kind of reasons might there be not to do a public attribution? So, first of all, the, the, the main public attribution took place in October last year. So this was before the, the more recent... Uh, uh, releases. Um, there was much less evidence at the time as to who they were. I think is is not so much that they didn't think it was Russia, it's that perhaps they just didn't have high enough confidence to go public with it. Um, there's, you know, perhaps a, a, a more evidence now as to what actually was taken. You know, the, the intelligence community presumably has uh, been looking into this leak to try and identify, you know, who stole these tools, you know, where, where they might have come from and so on. Um, so I, I wouldn't infer that the U.S. doesn't believe that they're Russia. I would infer that they, they have chosen for whatever reasons not to say that on record. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, um, what is the conventional wisdom in the InfoSec <laughs> community as far as people who speculate and comment on these things? Is, has it coalesced around the view that it is, in fact, a particular uh, foreign entity? So um, with attribution, you, you get multiple different strands as to uh, attribution. So you, you might have a technical attribution, you might have, uh, which might say that, for instance, the malware is communicating with a particular, you know, controller that we know is associated with a particular country, that might be a technical attributor. Uh, you might have things like uh, uh, language attributors. So for instance, in the event that they're releasing releases in, in French, you might, you know, infer yeah. that they're a country so that, that speaks no, that, French. That sounds easily spoofed. The, the, those are much more easily spoofed, but also they're, they're not available here because these are releases of files that ostensibly come from uh, uh, the NSA. They don't release any other files. There's no malware to analyze. There's no you know, spear phishing campaign that we can look into. And the language is very clearly intentionally obfuscated. Right. So there's, there's really no analysis that we can do there. Um, but we can do anal- uh, you know, an analysis on, on the structure of what they, they have. You know, not many people would have access to these tools. Uh, not many people that did have access to these tools would be willing to go quite so public with it. Um, certainly their release schedule has, has been very much to the advantage of the Russian government. And, you know, the fact that they haven't been caught yet is, you know, again, 
know, where the US government is pretty good at tracking down people mm-hmm. uh, 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 that might have stolen their tools. If this is the Russian government, that option wouldn't be available to them. So it, it, uh, I think on the balance of probabilities, it is very likely to be the Russian government. So the, the most recent tranche has gotten a lot of attention, uh, a lot of talk about some particularly uh, what looked like they had been for a time, particularly useful and valuable uh, ODAs uh, pertaining to Microsoft. Um, it looks like uh, recently there was uh, a significant, much-observed uh, patch by Microsoft that looks a lot like it was responsive to that. And so perhaps, um, you know, one possibility is, look, these tools are out there. Once it became clear that someone had told Microsoft about them, then whoever had them no longer had much value in sitting on them. So you might as well just throw them out there, if only to embarrass and to further embarrass and sort of stick in the eye of the NSA. Yeah, so the the tools that were released in uh, uh, last year were specifically relating to routers, and the the tools that were released uh, uh, just now were uh, relating to uh, mostly Windows. Um, I I think exclusively Windows. I can't quite remember. Um, and and these were used for remotely taking control of of Windows computers. Um, until very recently, these were you know uh, uh, w- w- would have been widely applicable to you know people using Microsoft Windows. Uh, uh, particularly on servers and within corporations, not so much at home. Um, Microsoft patched this in uh, March. So in the event that you're running Windows updates, your computer is now uh, safe from all of these zero-day vulnerabilities. Um, uh, InfoSec got themselves into a bit of a muddle uh, whilst doing initial analysis. I, I think a lot of people uh, jumped to conclusions um, and, and didn't try with uh, a virtual machine setup with all of the patches installed. So there was a lot of initial confusion as to whether or not these exploits were still live. Oh, interesting. Um, it turns out that all of them had been patched in, in this March uh, update. There was additional confusion because uh, journalists asked Microsoft, hey, did the National Security Agency <laughs> right. uh, 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 give you all of these exploits? And Microsoft said... Uh, um, uh, this is the first we've heard of it. Um, so <laughs> um, so th- th- there was a lot of initial confusion as to whether or not... Um, so the US has the vulnerabilities equities process, which I, I expect a lot of listeners will have already heard of. But the, the vulnerabilities equities process is the system by which uh, the US government assesses vulnerabilities as to whether or not they should disclose them or use them operationally. Uh, and it, it seeks to, to understand that balance. Um, in this particular case... Um, because the U.S. government knew that Shadow Brokers Group had stolen these exploits, um, there was a presumption that, hey, the vulnerability equities process, if it means anything, must surely have weighed towards disclosure. Initially, when it looked like they hadn't disclosed, that would have been a, a very significant indictment of that process. Now that it turns out that all of these vulnerabilities were very conspicuously patched immediately right. before this release, that leads to, to <laughs> additional questions as to... Presumably it was the US government that right. disclosed this to Microsoft. Microsoft was able to patch them. But then was the fact that they were patched the cause of the release or was the release independent? You know, it, it's a difficult question to that. So you're saying it looks like it, it could be that there's a sequence of decisions under the, uh, the VEP, the Vulnerabilities Equities Process, and the decision at point in time one when these exploits are discovered is obviously it was let's keep these, let's use these, let's not disclose these. At point in time two, the fact pattern changes in an important way. You learn that someone else has gotten a hold of them through whatever means. And once you've determined that's the case, 
clearly that does alter the balance. I don't think it means that therefore you must disclose necessarily that you still have to know what you're, we, we don't know from the outside what these were being used internally for, what kind of value they were producing that might not have been replaceable, and conversely, what knowledge they may have, may have had on the inside about how likely it was that there would be actual uh, significantly costly to the public uh, use by whoever had taken them. It, we can imagine scenarios in which they knew damn well who had taken them, they knew exactly what they might do with them, and this then set off further debate. At some point, though, and we don't have any sense, I think, from the outside how long this went on and how serious the internal debate might have been, it looks a lot like the decision was made, no, at this point we need to go ahead, that the specter of these being released, or indeed maybe even sign, maybe some signs that they were in fact being used by whoever had gotten them in harmful ways, uh, tilted in favor of going ahead and notifying Microsoft. So maybe in the end this is a sign of the, the VEP working well. It's very hard to judge. Yeah, and I think it's also worth bearing in mind that this might not have been the vulnerabilities equities process itself that led to that decision. It may have been a, a policy decision that took place outside of the, the VEP because this was such a high-profile case. Well, very good point, right? So th it's not like the VEP is the be-all, end-all. The, the same equities can be considered in other contexts. Outside of the P. It, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, outside the P. It's just VE, ad hoc VE. Indeed. Um, Interesting stuff. I guess we, we, we ought to really have coursework around this, shouldn't we? We should. We should maybe maybe let people get credit for it. And, and you know, I should add this this uh, system of courses we're going to set up. If it all goes well, which I'm sure it will, eventually this is going to be uh, a recurrently available system of courses that no matter what your degree program is, uh, you if you get accepted into a, a programmatic aspect of it, you can get a transcript designated. So along with your JD, you can have a portfolio designation showing you took integrated cybersecurity studies. So I might have to sign it myself. Yeah, exactly. I think we could all use it. Uh, well, I guess I guess this means that, that when Matt is back in the fall, when we're up to episodes, I guess, 30-something? We haven't been canceled, yes. Who's canceling us? Our family. Our family. Uh, we'll have to have Matt back. Yeah, absolutely. But but before he goes, right, I mean, last I checked, he's English. And? And they like soccer in England. Football. The other football. The other football. So, Real football. I mean, we, we, we could, we could <laughs> be careful saying that around here, Matt. The Longhorns. I know, right? Football. Well, uh, do we, is, Okay, is so it? in addition to your, soon you'll be a, a great fan of the Texas Longhorn football team, but when you're not rooting for them, prospectively, uh, who do you root for in uh, more uh, more British sports? Uh, so my, my family is uh, a, a keen uh, Manchester United fans. Steve, how, did, how does that make you feel, my friend? I mean, at the moment, you know, Bob, Bobby knows that I am I am a, a long-standing Spurs, and I don't mean San Antonio you, fan. But you should. Um, right? Who, then, who are these Urzat Spurs of whom you're referring? Tottenham Hotspur, uh, oh, yes. North London's finest. Um, right, who I was introduced to in the summer of 2003 when I was a summer associate at Cleary Gottlieb in London, um, and one of the partners had tickets to White Hart Lane. So my first exposure to Premier League English football was was Spurs, and I was hooked. I love it. See, I knew one way or the other my, my dream that you would become a Spurs fan would, would find fruit, and it's <laughs> but, but, but we misfired. This is my Spurs quota. Anyway, I raised this because, um, as very few of our listeners may know, uh, the Premier League season is coming down to the wire, right? We're through, I think, what, 32 of the 38 match days. So there are six games left. Um, and somehow Spurs, who, who never do this, are four points back at Chelsea with six games to play. Uh, Matt, are they going to make it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you could, you could have let me, you could have stripped me along for a minute. 
Um, but the best part, and, and that you'll have to explain this to me. I mean, I think I know the answer. So Spurs and Chelsea are playing on Saturday, but it doesn't count. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's is um uh, uh the FA Cup, right? It is the FA Cup. Yeah. Wait, so wait, somebody uh, tell me what that stands for. The Football Association Cup. Yes. Who are they, as opposed to English? English Premier League. I'll ask the ask the expert. It's complicated. So the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more complicated than the vulnerability the vulnerabilities equities That's process. Right. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so right, my understanding is the FA Cup is it's, all of it's the not Premier League. Yeah. It's all the associations uh, in England who play a tournament with each other, so that even the little little community sides who are never going to make it out of the third division, yeah. right, have have a, a once a year shot at one of the big boys. Well, it's kind of fun. Um, it is fun, but it creates this weird specter where it's like late in the playoff chase. Yeah, and the two teams who are vying for the top spot are indeed playing each other in a game that doesn't matter at all to the playoff chase. So do the rest of the starters, the usual starters, and kind of... Well, the FA Cup's a big deal. <laughs> well, the Premier League's a bigger deal. But... Yeah. So anyway, all this is just to say that like all of my sports allegiances, I'm going to get my hopes up for about a week and a half. And then they'll come. Spurs will lose to someone they totally shouldn't lose to. If you'd, Chelsea like to will... if you'd like to avoid that problem, may I recommend the San Antonio Spurs against the Memphis Grizzlies, which you will enjoy so much more as a Spurs fan. Um, indeed, uh, the the referees in that series are also enjoying it very much as Spurs fans. <laughs> Ouch! Well, you know when you have uh, the kind of. Uh, track record the Spurs have, the stars they have in a star. You totally league. deserve one sided officiating where, you know, Mike Conley gets hacked fourteen times going to the hoop and doesn't get fouled. Where are you from Memphis or are you just like visiting there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm from Fairness, Bobby. I come from Fairness America. The oh, real question is why don't you? You and your due process. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, we could talk about the NBA playoffs, but let's be honest, two months from now We'll still be talking about the NBA playoffs. It is fun, though, to watch. The, you know, the regular season is so painful to watch sometimes. You get in even the first round. The, the level of the game steps up. The effort, the, the players who actually get Not the officiating. Oh, I don't know. This looks perfectly fine to me. Uh, maybe Homer. <laughs> All right. On that note, why don't we let our, our friends who remain on the uh, listening into this go on to their exercise and sleep and But whatnot. follow Pun All The Things on Twitter. Uh, follow NSL Podcast on Twitter. If you're still listening... Congratulations. <laughs> and thank you. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Adios. Stay safe out there.